You're about to listen to episode two of the Here to There podcast, produced right here at Studio Americana. I'm Ian Levitt, the president and a producer here. And if you're listening now, you likely understand that this format is the future of media. We're here to guide you through that process of creating a high-quality podcast. Take a moment to check out our website, studioamericana.com, and drop me a line. As you can imagine, I really like talking about this stuff, and I'd be happy to discuss your vision for the next big podcast. That's studioamericana.com. And now, episode two of Here to There. Welcome to Here to There, a podcast about commuting in and around the Twin Cities and where it could go next. From Apparatus and Transit for Livable Communities and co-hosted by Laylee Fatahi and Laura Monginsberg, Here to There brings you along for a variety of commutes across the many systems, neighborhoods, and modes available to Twin Cities commuters. In today's episode, we focus on sustainable electric transportation options and the policies that support them. We'll start by taking a ride in two very different electric vehicles in the suburbs of Minneapolis before heading to the studio where we're joined by a policy manager at Fresh Energy. To follow along with additional resources and information, visit heretotheirpodcast.org and follow the H2T podcast hashtag on Twitter. And now, let's join the ride. So Tim, why don't you tell us first, where are we and where are we headed to? This is Laura, back again as one of your podcast co-hosts, and that, of course, was Laylee, my partner at Apparatus, who got to ride along with electric vehicle enthusiast Tim Reckmeyer. We joined them leaving Tim's Edina, Minnesota office in a Nissan Leaf. We're, uh, we're currently sitting in a 2016 Nissan Leaf in the Microsoft parking lot in Edina, Minnesota, and we're going to be working our way to Prior Lake, Minnesota, which is about, I don't know, rush hour traffic, probably a 30-minute drive. Okay, and so this is your commute home from work, correct? Yep. Great. So, off we go. With electric cars becoming more and more competitive with gas-fueled cars when it comes to style, performance, and durability, consumer interest is growing rapidly. What was your impetus for deciding to purchase, and you said originally, lease an electric vehicle? The original impetus was... Twofold. One, I had a really old 1999 Honda Accord that we needed to replace. It was starting to fall apart. And as we started looking around, we decided to marry that up against some things that we wanted to do from a carbon footprint perspective. But then very quickly, I realized that there's the flip side of that coin, and that is the cost savings and the economics that come with owning an electric car that actually now is even, to me, likely more important than the carbon footprint piece. We spend per mile, the LEAF, it costs us about 1.5 cents per mile to drive because we're on an after-hours electricity program with our electric provider. And I'm not going to be able to pull the math straight up, but if you go 400 miles times 1.5 cents, what is that, maybe seven bucks? Mm Last I checked, you can't go anywhere near 400 miles for $7 when you're using gasoline. Of course, it's more than just saving at the pump that factors into your total cost of ownership when you consider the cost of your vehicle. What's your experience been with maintenance and repair on these vehicles? Yeah, in the two Nissan Leafs that I've owned, my total out-of-pocket, not including tires, not including tires, my total out-of-pocket cost of ownership has been less than $400 in maintenance 
for 60,000 miles of, of all-electric vehicle driving. That's incredible. It's fantastic. <laughs> Economically, I tell anybody, and we have, I have an eighth grader and a fourth grader, so we've got lots of people that are starting to think about third cars, and I, I just tell them, I'm like, hey, go buy the $11,000 electric car because you'll be able to pass it down to your kids, and you know that they're not going to drive to Rochester without you. <laughs> And it's a really cheap and great car to own from a ROI and TCO perspective. Gas and maintenance aside, battery range is one of the biggest questions that face electric vehicles, especially for potential owners that have to travel great distances in their daily commutes. So how much uh, distance do you typically get on a charge? Yeah, so, so, and just to follow on that thought, I left my house this morning with 80% in the the tank, right, Mm -hmm. on the battery. With this car, which has a 30-kilowatt-hour battery pack, and that is, for your listeners, that is the the size of the tank, if you will, of the gas tank. On a day like today, I could easily go 100 miles without having to plug in at work. And when we climbed into the car, you noticed I wasn't plugged mm-hmm. in at work. I was just parked like any other car, even though I have the option... Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have the option at my workplace of having a place to plug in if I chose to. I believe there are two owners in town that own a Chevy Bolt, and those vehicles will go 215 miles on a charge is the is the rated range that they have on them. And the cost is very similar, a little bit more than brand new than what the car that we're currently in is, but it doubles the range. Um, And so it's exciting to see what they're doing. And uh, the Model 3 that's coming is going to be another interesting competition point. You know, so you'll have the Chevy Bolt and the Tesla Model 3 that'll both at their base go 215 miles. And I think they're both right around a retail price point of $35,000. And when you put in the federal tax credit of $7,500, you're now below thirty dollars as a technology guy, I can't wait to see the competition that's going to be happening, especially since a lot of the manufacturers, Ford and some of the others, have said electrification is the future, and they're all they're planning on ramping up uh, at large scale the electric cars that they provide. As interest in driving electric cars grows, so does the opportunity for community building. Do you have other colleagues that drive electric vehicles? We do. In the Centennial Lakes Complex, there are a dozen of us that drive electric cars, and we have everybody's email, and uh, if if somebody needs a charge, they send out an email to everybody going, hey, if you're plugged in and you're full, please come down over lunch or a coffee break or a whatever break you might want to take and, and uh, remove the plug and let me know when that's been done so that I can plug myself in. And that was interesting. It's kind of a group community aspect. We've gotten enough people where we're working with the Centennial Lakes folks that own the complex to create additional stalls because we think that this is going to become more commonplace to have either a pure electric car or an electric car in the form of a Volt type of scenario. And more and more people are going to want to be able to plug in when they come to the come to the office complex. You said there's, you know, a community aspect. It seems like across Minnesota there's quite this community of electric vehicle owners. What's that dynamic? There is an electric car group. It's the, oh, and I'm going to blank Minnesota plug-in. Plug in. There's a Tesla group that I'm a part of, and then there's the general broad electric vehicle community group. The Tesla group will meet up occasionally and talk all things Tesla-specific. And then the general electric vehicle group is very good about 
showing up when people ask and they, you know, lots of people have questions about electric cars. Where do you plug it in? How do you make it work at your house? How far can you go? What are the different options that I have? Can I drive it from here to Rochester, Minnesota and back? Can I drive it to Flagstaff, Arizona and back? And that group is very giving of their time. Many, many people will show up. Um, Yuka even has a, a whole listing of places where people can just sign up through an online sign-up sheet anytime there's an organization or a group or an event that wants to have an electric car there. And the group is wonderful about donating their time to help educate the general population of the benefits of driving electric vehicles. Even if electric vehicles can appeal to different political backgrounds, there's still the issue of policy affecting the trajectory of EV ownership, popularity, and growth. So you also are personally involved in some of your social activities and things like the Citizens Climate Lobby and things like that. Yeah, that is... That's an interesting space to work in outside of my day job as a, as a volunteer, spending time working with federally elected officials on both sides of the aisle and encouraging them to be bipartisan in a way that allows our country to have more energy choice at a lower cost point to create competition. And quite frankly, if I wanted to have the opportunity to go off the grid, and just be responsible for being my own personal power plant, I would love that opportunity. So we, through the work that we do with Citizens Climate Lobby, we work with all of the folks on Capitol Hill, specifically the three legislators that I have, which are Jason Lewis, Amy Klobuchar, and Al Franken, and we're encouraging them to basically put a 100% revenue neutral price on carbon that ultimately grows the economy creates a lot of jobs, reduces uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that the United States produces, and ultimately, I believe the innovation that will come out of that is something that can be exported to the rest of the world rather than us buying things from China like we do today to take a leadership role and export all that stuff so that people are following our lead. Electric vehicles tend to get lumped in with a very specific political and environmental perspective. But as Laley and Tim dig into, EVs can be seen as more of a unifier than a divider. We think of climate as being one of the most politically polarizing issues of the time. And you're describing within the electric vehicle community that this is really a very nonpartisan area of innovation. You see this is kind of a, uh, an area where there's room for common ground in policy? Absolutely. And I think that more and more as we witness the effects of climate that the reality just sets in. And as more and more people choose, and and I'm careful with my language here, choose to work with their representatives, even if they don't fit their political ideology, we can't keep beating each other over the head with this. And so that's Citizen Climate Lobby's model, is to work with our elected officials There are a lot of people who understand the the benefits, and it's interesting because it's not just a bunch of liberal tree huggers. We also have very conservative individuals and libertarian even that are a part of that group that understand what electric cars mean to 
society as a whole and everybody brings their different perspectives together some people might be doing it because they want to save the planet others like uh, my libertarian friend want to do it because straight up they don't want to be have any responsibilities to the man mm -hmm. they would love to be able to put solar panels on their house with a battery pack at their house and then just have their own uh, their own charging facility right then and there so that they don't have to be dependent upon anybody else and then there are also conservatives who acknowledge the fact that carbon is changing the the climate for the planet and and that they should go back to their roots of teddy roosevelt to conserve and that's some of the reasons why they own electric cars as well rather than arguing about the science let's argue about how we're gonna innovate and lead the world out of this problem that we have created for ourselves the reality is that you have a fundamental market failure uh, that needs to be corrected. And the market failure is, is that the cost of carbon is not accounted for by the uh, providers of energy. And I use energy in a specific word because that could be in the form of liquid energy, gasoline and oil. It could also be gas energy like natural gas, but it can also be coal. And if you were to ensure that the people that are providing that are accountable for their, uh, essentially their waste, we would see a level playing field that allows all of the energy companies to compete and the best fuel source would win. I don't view it as my job to pick and choose the winner. Let's just level the playing field and let everybody compete in a fair and equitable fashion. And then I see that my wife just pulled in with the Tesla, so if we wanted to go for a quick spin with that. Yes, we definitely want to ride in the Tesla. So this car has the ability to auto park itself. For our listeners, the car is backing itself out of the garage, and it is pretty damn amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now on the open road in the Tesla, we're going to see if it lives up to the hype. Spoiler alert, it does. When you become a, an electric car owner, whether it's a Leaf or a Volt, or in particular, uh, the Tesla that we're driving here, you become an evangelist whether you want to or not. Mm -hmm. Because people are curious, and the first question a lot of times is, well, where's the, you open the, the hood to the car, and there's no engine, and they're like, where's the engine? And in this car, there's two motors, one small one up front, and one bigger one that's the big drivetrain in the back and the batteries run from axle to axle, side to side, and it gives you a little bit of punch. Whoa! <laughs> you can take this car and go from zero to 60 in, uh, oh, I don't know what this one does, five seconds, give or take, and then the real fast ones will do it in three seconds. Really, wow. Yeah. But I made you lean back in your seat, didn't I? Yeah, no, that was, that was some serious giddy up and go. <laughs> <laughs> so the car is now driving us. So I'm not touching the steering wheel, I'm not touching the, the, the brake, I'm not touching anything. I'm still in control of the car. You know, technically I'm supposed to be doing this on a freeway and we're just on a four lane you know, uh, county road. So I'm gonna be very sensitive to the software and make sure it's doing its thing correctly. But it will recognize cars ahead of us and slow down and it will navigate around corners, not 90 degree corners, but as you can imagine, on a freeway when we drove to Flagstaff and back, I let the car drive us, I'd say, a good 70% of the time. Really? Yeah. 
As cool as the self-driving capabilities are of the Tesla today, we asked him what he would do if the car was completely automated and he could be a truly passive passenger. If there wasn't a steering wheel and pedals and I just had to get in and tell it to go, I would be utilizing my time to work. I would get my eight to five day in at eight o'clock from the moment that I stepped into the car, I would just work on my laptop, get caught up on email that came in overnight, maybe have a phone call to whoever it happens to be, and that would occupy that half hour of time going into work, as opposed to having to leave at, say, seven o'clock and fight rush hour traffic to arrive at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, if people, if we have, if and when we have, you know, self-driving cars and we're you're no longer stuck in traffic, unproductive behind the wheel, does that reduce kind of the desire to live closer to the city and use mass transit? Do you think more people will choose to move to the suburbs and purchase their own vehicles and, and use that kind of mode? I would argue that while the technology is coming, there are lots of things to overcome. Uh, and in the meantime, it would be smart to on a holistic basis, really think about how to move people from point A to point B, using all, forts, all forms of different transportation. Um, you know, I live 16 miles from work, but I, during the summer months, I will pedal bike into work. So I get an exercise in the process. So I don't drive a car, but I pedal bike. And for me to be able to have that option, if I so chose to, which I do, to bike into work once a week, and have it in a way that's safe for me to take my bicycle to work and back, that's a great option for me to have. Mm -hmm. Choice is fantastic. When you look at self-driving cars, I mean, think about what that does for somebody, right? You just push a button on some sort of a device and a car shows up and all of a sudden you have that freedom and that mobility back that Americans value. I mean, that's a part of our core, that's a part of who we are as a society. Laura here, back in the studio now with Laylee, and you really got a two-for-one getting to ride in both a Leaf and a Tesla. It was a great ride. And as you heard, Tim is really knowledgeable about electric vehicles uh, as an owner and an operator. Did the automation of the Tesla make you think that self-driving cars are closer than we might think? Absolutely. The Tesla was really driving itself, and it was an exciting glimpse into the not-so-distant future and what it'll look like. So now that we're back in the studio, you were joined by Andrew from Fresh Energy. What are we going to hear in that conversation? Andrew's going to help us clear up some of the most common misperceptions about electric vehicles and give us a more holistic understanding of where EVs fall within the broader portfolio of energy-related issues. Well, that sounds great. Let's go to the interview. So I'm in the studio with Andrew Twight, who is a senior policy associate on the energy markets team at Fresh Energy. And Andrew is an expert specializing in electric vehicles and in grid modernization. So why don't you tell us first a little bit about what the grid is and why it needs to be modernized? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So the electric grid really is a tremendous marvel. And it's been called by some people as the greatest engineering achievement of the 20th century. It does work really well in a lot of different ways. But what we've seen in the last five or 10 years or 15 or 20 is a lot of technology advances that really allow us to make our electricity system run more efficiently. We can make it cleaner and more reliable and function a lot more efficiently than it has in the past. So that's not to say that our grid isn't smart already. It, it absolutely is. But um, new technology and especially computing power and the ability to monitor and control is really giving 
our grid operators a lot of options that they just didn't have even five or ten years ago. And what's the role of electric vehicles? Electric vehicles are a really great grid asset because they are the ultimate in flexible load. So as I come home with my electric vehicle, I plug it in. The car has a charging timer on it. If you have a special charger, that will have the charging timer on it too. As long as I my car is charged by the time I go to work in the morning, I don't care whether it was charging at 6 p.m. or midnight or 6 a.m. So it really gives the grid a lot of flexibility, the ability to charge that whenever it's most optimal to, say, integrate wind resources or other things like that. There are a lot of things that people think are true about electric vehicles and they see as limitations that perhaps are not the case. So let's start with electric vehicles are more expensive to purchase than fuel-powered vehicles. Right. And I think the important distinction here is between the sticker price that you would see on the at the dealership and the total cost of ownership of that car. Right now, for most in most cases, the electric vehicles are a little bit more expensive than the comparable internal combustion engine car. And at the very start, but they also cost a lot less to fuel, and they also have a lot less maintenance and uh, repair requirements because they have fewer uh, moving parts that can break. They have fewer belts and things. They don't need oil changes. They don't need as much regular preventative maintenance either. So for most cars, you actually end up paying more in gas and maintenance and repairs over the life of that vehicle than you do up front. And the total cost of ownership, when you when you figure in the fuel savings and the maintenance savings, electric vehicles are already the cheapest option in most cases. There's a, a $7,500 federal tax credit that's available to everybody. Um, there's also the Drive Electric Minnesota Coalition has done a really great job working with car manufacturers and utilities to offer additional discounts on top of that. Last month, the Drive Electric Coalition offered $10,000 discount on a Nissan Leaf. So that's in addition to that $7,500 tax credit. So really, you could get a new Leaf for $17,500 less than the sticker price. How much is the cost of having to then install the charging equipment in your garage? Well, it, it depends on the car. I mean, for something with a, like a Leaf that has a smaller battery or if a, like a plug-in hybrid like the Chevy Volt, you really don't need to do anything. I mean, I have a Leaf. We've had it for a year and a half, and we just plug it into the wall. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> it, it works as well as long as you're not driving a ton of miles every day. So if you did have a car that, that one of the newer cars that goes two or 300 miles and you do really drive it a lot, you might want to get a faster charger. But even then, you can get the ChargePoint Home, which is the best home charger there is, starts at $500. So how would you say the Twin Cities stacks up to other cities nationwide uh, in terms of policies and programs and infrastructure and things like that to support electric vehicles? Are we electric vehicle friendly here? Yeah, like, I'd definitely say that we are. Uh, we're probably about in the middle of the pack, uh, both in terms of EV adoption and the policies. We're not as, as much of a leader as maybe some of us would like to be, but we're also not behind by any means either. We So if you look at websites like PugShare, Org. You can see there. there's lots of electric vehicle charging infrastructure around. Many of the utilities have those special electric vehicle charging rates. There's really a lot of, a lot of positive things that Minnesota has done. And I think, too, 
we were hit a little bit worse on the first generation of cars that have that shorter range because in the winter, your um, range will go down a little bit. I think it, it made people especially skittish in a very extreme cold climate like this. So I think we'll get an even bigger bump than the rest of the country when these cars start going, uh, can go two or 300 miles on the charge. So what are things we could be doing from a policy perspective to make Minnesota a more robust environment mm-hmm. for, for electric vehicles to thrive? Yeah, there's a lot of things that states can do. For one, 10 states in the country have the zero emissions vehicle policy that is basically a requirement for manufacturers to sell a certain amount of zero emissions vehicles cars. Absent that, I mean, you could also increase the gas tax, right? So the gas tax right now is well below what the actual costs of that, the pollution that's coming from those internal combustion engines is costing right now. And increasing the gas tax really takes care of that externality problem, makes sure that people are actually paying the full cost of the emissions from their cars, and it also makes uh, electric vehicles a lot more competitive. But beyond that, possibly the most important thing is really getting the charging infrastructure in place because there needs to be sort of a, a critical mass of charging infrastructure before people are going to be willing to buy an electric vehicle. Among the people that are you know, really doing the thinking and the planning around electric vehicle policy, are they sort of thinking multi-jurisdictionally? I mean, in terms of you know, what to do at the local level, state level, regional level, federal, and then maybe across private and public as well? Yeah, definitely. So in a more challenging political situation, you need to be creative. You need to go where you can make the progress. Um, but it's also a double-edged sword because... Uh, I've seen, and I think you've probably seen too, uh, since the elections, people have been a lot more energized. They're a lot more vocal. They're a lot more excited to to work themselves to, to, to make change. And I think tapping into that energy, this is the perfect place to do it because electric vehicles, they've come a long way. They're, they're cost competitive with internal combustion cars right now. Plus, there's just so much better to drive. And I think that this is one area where there's a lot of excitement around it. And there's a lot of people who are starting to think about it. And it's really an area that's about to really take off. So what do you think are some mechanisms for getting that kind of infrastructure put in? I mean, is it about, you know, incentivizing for new developers to build it in? Is it things like, you know, the points that we give through lead certification? Yep, it's it's really all of the above. So you, you talked about building codes. Uh, there's a lot of work being on that make, in making new buildings EV ready. So maybe not having the charging infrastructure there, but like, you know, having the conduit to to make it easy for it to be added later. Um, but there's also wider, uh, you know, state-level things we can do. For example, there is uh, the v- Volkswagen um, emissions scandal. <laughs> many we your, know it well. Your <laughs> listeners are familiar with. So Volkswagen got caught violating the, the Clean Air Act and pretty heavy penalty as a result of that. But the silver lining to that cloud is there's going to be a lot of money spent on charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. Part of that the state doesn't control, but part the state does control. And if the state does step up and take advantage of this one-time money to really build out that charging infrastructure and to do it statewide, I think it'll really make electric vehicles a lot more viable for the whole of Minnesota, not just for the people in the metro. Quick explanation and update. The Minnesota legislature was considering a bill that would have potentially disqualified the state from receiving $47 million to support projects that offset diesel fuel emissions. Fortunately, Apparatus and Fresh Energy, along with some other partners, put the kibosh on that. What is the general sort of tenor around electric vehicle policies been at the, the state legislature? 
the tone of the le legislature has been less EV friendly than maybe it has been in the past. Um, there have been a number of bills introduced that would add a tax to electric vehicles to compensate for the fact that they don't pay the gas tax. There have been some good things. There was a bill that was introduced that would um, allow utilities to develop a charging infrastructure plan and submit it to the Public Utilities Commission. It doesn't look like that's going to be successful this um, session, but something that could be worked on in the future. If Minnesota were to get a large sum of money, say we got, you know, $25 million, something like that, to do a demonstration project in the area of transportation, what would your dream transportation project look like? So I'm really excited about the electrification of our transit buses. So Metro Transit is looking at this already. The electrification of transit really has, it's the place where you can get the biggest bang for the buck because these buses drive so many miles uh, and because they're going right through our densest urban areas. So right now, I mean, we really have a ton of pollution right in our city's cores. I'm not talking about just um, global warming pollution, but the sort of criteria pollutants that are really causing public health problems. I mean, we're in North Minneapolis right now. The freeway goes directly through the neighborhood. It's not a coincidence that the air quality in North Minneapolis is, has the worst air quality in the state. And it disproportionately affects low-income people and people of color. And electrifying transportation will dramatically lower local pollution. It'll also have cost savings, and it'll also be large enough to do these really interesting things in terms of providing grid services and doing more with the charging than simply taking energy in. What about the intersection between car sharing and electrification? Does car sharing lend itself more readily to electrification, or are there challenges that exist? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there will be challenges, but Car sharing is really a great opportunity for electrification because the tremendous benefit you get in the, the per-mile cost of an electric vehicle are just multiplied by the more miles that vehicle is driving. A car sharing, uh, or a person who is... The subscriber. A, a driver, mm -hmm. yeah, will be spending a lot more time in that car than you or I would otherwise. So that driver is really going to see those dramatic savings and the uh, people in those neighborhoods will also notice the benefit of not having those emissions in their uh, neighborhoods too. Is there any interplay between you know, the, the increased adoption of electric vehicles and then, I mean, the actual like feedstock source of what the electricity is? I mean, you know, so if, if it's coal-powered electricity uh -huh. that's then being put into your electric vehicle, are we really decreasing uh, yeah. the environmental footprint, or what's that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. So for the, to address the coal issue first, I mean, because electric vehicles are so much more fuel efficient than internal combustion engines, even if you are powering it purely on coal, there's still a little bit of a carbon benefit. But in Minnesota, we've seen such a radical transition in our energy system. We've added so much wind. We've really cleaned our electricity generation dramatically, even over just the last 10 or 15 years. And we're on pace to continue that even more. But the thing that's most exciting to me as a, a clean energy advocate is the more flexible load that we can add in things like electric vehicles or electric water heaters and things like that, they allow us to integrate more variable, renewable generation sources like wind and solar into the grid. So right now, uh, wind in Minnesota, wind energy is extraordinarily cheap. I mean, it's hard to conceive of how cheap it is to get wind energy in Minnesota right now. A utility can sign a contract to guarantee a price over 25 years of two cents a kilowatt hour for clean wind energy in Minnesota. 
And right, right now we pay about 12 cents a kilowatt hour you know, on your bill. So wind is extraordinarily cheap. It's clean technology. It drives economic development. It's paying property taxes in rural areas in Minnesota. Everything about wind is good. It's great. Everybody wants as much wind as they can. But the problem is it's intermittent, right? Wind doesn't always blow. And uh, especially for the electric industry, the, the problem is that it, wind production tends to be the highest overnight, which is when electricity demand is the lowest. So by adding new load that can be charged overnight, like electric vehicles, like electric water heaters, we're creating more demand for wind power, and we're creating, or we'll be able to integrate more of this wind power and clean the grid for everybody by adding more of this flexible load. I think so many of us, when we think of electric vehicles, we just think in terms of the environmental footprint coming out of the tailpipe, mm -hmm. but exactly as you're indicating, I mean, there's so many environmental and sustainability benefits that are at the beginning of the pipe yeah. as well. And I would also add, they're just so much fun to drive, you know? I mean, it's, uh, there's, they're silent, there's no emissions, they're quick. You don't have to schedule oil changes. You don't have to go to the gas pump. You never have to smell gas on your hands. You don't have to smell exhaust when you're warming up your car in the winter. I mean, those are small things, but those are the kinds of things that Americans love, right? That's what American consumers love is new technology that improves your quality of life and your customer experience. And electric vehicles are exactly that. I'm sold. I'm ready for one. <laughs> Here to There is produced by Apparatus, Transit for Livable Communities, and Studio Americana. Your hosts are Laley Fatahi and Laura Monginsberg. Production and editing by Ian Levitt with Studio Americana. Original music supplied by Bubba Holly. No part of this podcast may be used or reproduced without express written consent of apparatus. To join the ride, subscribe to Here to There at heretotherepodcast.org on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. While you're there, don't forget to leave us a review and rating. Stop by the heretotherepodcast.org website for additional content, including extended interviews, an interactive commuting story map, pictures and videos from our commutes, and much more.